Zechariah chapter 5 <clears throat> contains two visions um, told to us by the prophet. Now, the first we looked at last week, verses 1 to 4, and th- uh, this morning we'll be looking at uh, verses 5 to 11, the second vision of chapter 5, the book of Zechariah. Uh, before we go to the Lord, or hear from the Lord, let's go to him once more in prayer and ask for his blessing uh, upon the reading and hearing and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come again before you, confessing this is, professing this is your word. Uh, it is written down expressly as you have breathed it out. And we pray, Lord, that as we hear it read and proclaim now, that you would indeed bless this word as it goes forth, that it would go forth in truth, Lord, that it would also be received with hearts of faith, believing and trusting in you. Heavenly Father, we pray, give us hearts that are ready to hear it. Help us, Lord, to bend our lives and our wills towards you. Change us by it. We pray this morning that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 5. Such a delight to come to worship together with you as the people of God this morning in a world that seems that we are beat up consistently throughout all the week and we can come to the house of the Lord, truly a place of safety, security, and health. Let's uh, hear from the Lord now. This is Zechariah 5, beginning at verse, uh, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what what, what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when, that, and when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. We turn again this morning to Zechariah chapter 5. As I said, we look at the second vision um, of chapter 5. The second vision, the seventh overall, and uh, these visions that he had on that very busy night. And we see that up to this point, we have been these, these, what he has been given and what he has been shown has been largely encouraging uh, by way of remembrance, or mem- uh, to remind you, uh, remember these visions had to do with the promise of God that he would defeat his enemies, that he would defeat his people's enemies, his conquering the darkness, remember, his defeat of the powers against his people, the promise again of the Lord that he will again be with his people as well as bring the nations in, right? The fulfillment of that Abrahamic, uh, the Abrahamic covenant um, back in Genesis uh, 15, 
Uh, and, then, and then the promise to atone for their very sins, to cleanse them and to make them holy. The promise to grow the church by the work of the Holy Spirit in them and to be the light of the world. And in chapter 5, as we saw last week, there's sort of a turn. It's kind of a turn. These two visions in chapter 5, there is a warning. But glory is not absent from these visions as well. Indeed, there is yet glory. And as we dig into this chapter, uh, and we listen carefully and take seriously the warnings that are going on here, we need to always be mindful of what we began our study with, you will recall. We talked about uh, the reality that these are indeed, uh, even these prophets, especially these prophets, are preachers of Christ. Right? They're preachers of Christ. And we need to always remind ourselves when reading um, these difficult passages, these difficult portions of Scripture, um, that it's written for you. Right? This is the Word of God for you, the people of God. They were given for you. They were written for our benefit, not our frustration, not, our ne- not, not for our neglect, but for your benefit, the Word of God, all of it. And so I want to tell you right up front to orient you to what's going on uh, and to where this text is leading us. And I want us to see from this passage in verses 5 to 11, uh, we need to see that because our holy and sovereign Lord, because of his love for us, he frees us to live for him and to cleanse us of our iniquity. And that indeed is a glorious promise that we need to re- uh, remember as we go into this passage. Because of his love for his people, he frees us to live for him and to cleanse us of our iniquity. And so these two visions in chapter 5 involve, you remember last week, the flying scroll and then a woman in a basket. A woman in a basket. Uh, the first vision, he sees a flying scroll. And then this, this, uh, this morning, we see in verses 5 and 6, Zechariah sees a basket. Right? The first vision involved judgment. This judgment that removes evil. And then the second vision uh, talks about the expulsion uh, of that evil. The expulsion that is used. And so, a scroll and a basket. Uh, remember, again, that the flying scroll we looked at last week it was called... Uh, was a call to the people um, that they were still a people in covenant with God. Right? Though they had gone through this exile, they'd been restored to the land, they were still a people in covenant with God. And the curses for violating that covenant were still in effect. They were not a lawless people. They were not to be a lawless people. Holiness was yet required of them. God will have the evil of that land dealt with right? by the scroll, by the covenant, right? the Ten Commandments that we saw that the scroll indeed was, and by the expulsion of evil from the land. And that's what we'll see today um, in the second vision of chapter 5. Right? God requires holiness from his people. They are to be what? A peculiar people, holy to the Lord, a holy nation, in order to what? To reflect his holiness to the world. And so I wonder, does it ever trouble you uh, that the church, the people of God, resemble the world far too closely? and their sinning, and their behavior that is very close to the world, like adopting its worldview, like championing the causes of the world, even even embracing its morals, adding to the church the causes and passions of the world. That is a kind of syncretism, a syncretism, by the way. Do you ever wonder if there is any difference at all between the culture and the church? Or more personally, do you ever grieve the sin in your own life. 
we grieve and are outraged at the perversion and sin of other people's lives, are we equally outraged at our own sin and our own perversions? Because we should be. And as we grow closer to the Lord, closer to our Savior, our sin and our dirtiness becomes more and more clear. As he unfolds that for us, it makes that clear to us. Does that grieve you as the people of God? How are we as the church different from the sinners in the world? Right? In one sense, we are sinners just like the world. In one sense, right? But we are, you'll recall that well-known Latin phrase, particularly in our tradition, uh, similiustus et peccatar. Right? We are at the same time justified and sinners. And so we are also ones who are saved and whose sins have been dealt with, where those on the outside, those outside of Christ, have not. We are very imperfect people. We're imperfect as they are, but we have a perfect Savior, praise the Lord, that's dealt with our sins. And so in Zechariah's day, the people of God were wondering similar things. They were wondering, asking these same questions. How are we different from the sinners of the world, the wickedness of the world? They were busy building their own houses, remember? The temple of the Lord lays in ruins. And the land was full of sin. And believers are asking, how can it be? We're acting like the world. And so as we look at this, uh, this second vision in chapter 5, the first thing we see here is the wickedness in the land. Right? The wickedness in the land. In verses 5 to 11 tell us what happens to the sins of God's people. What happens to it, right? Verses 1 to 4 talked about uh, the covenant and conviction of sin, right? Sin is judged according to the law of God. And in this vision, sin is taken away. And so what happens to the sins of God's people? Well, let's look. As we look at, chapter, at, at, uh, at this, the opening portion of this vision, verses 5 to 8, what do we see? We see a number of things. The first thing we see is a basket, right? A basket. It's a container that would hold about five or six gallons, right? It was uh, uh, this basket, ifa in Hebrew. Um, it was a normal part of commerce, a normal um, means of measurements, and it was regularly, also regularly used as a way to cheat with dishonest measurements. Right? We see something of this in Amos chapter 8 where it says, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sell, and it says that we may make the, the ephah, the basket, small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. Right? So this is a well-known thing used in commerce, but also as a way to cheat uh, with this dishonest, deceitful measure. And on this basket, we read it had a lead cover, right? a lid, a lead lid, and it holds a prisoner in this basket. And the prisoner is the woman. Well, who is the woman? Well, the angel says that the woman is wickedness. Wickedness. And the lid keeps it from escaping. And the angel thrusts her back in and thrusts the lid back on the basket. Well, what does this mean? Well, clues to what's, what's going on here, what this means, we see in verse 6, the basket is their iniquity going out in the land. Right? Verse 8 repeats what this woman is. It, this is wickedness, it says. And we see wickedness as a force personified in Proverbs 7, you will remember, as a woman of harlotry. 
Right? This is not uncommon in Scripture, this depiction, this symbolism. A woman, the goddess idolatry, syncretism, the Canaanite goddess, remember. Remember the Asherah poles and the Asherim. This is the connection to the, what this means. In Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 44, and speaking of the evil in the land that angered the Lord to judgment, it says this, the children gather, this is a, uh, Jeremiah 7, 18, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to what? To make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. So also when Israel is unfaithful throughout the Old Testament, she is said to be committing adultery with these foreign gods. An unfaithful woman committing harlotry with other gods. And so here's the wickedness of God's people. In verse 6, it says, in all the land. And this is similar if you look back to verse 3 that we looked at last week. The scroll that went, went out in all the land, right? It's the same expression. This billboard of announcement flashing with this flying scroll. Now sin and iniquity is shown. Wickedness is contained. It's contained in the basket, this leaden weight on top of it. The basket is a prison for wickedness. And it means, yes, there is iniquity in the land among the people of God, but it is contained. Right? It does not run free. It is not its own autonomous power. It is not allowed to run freely. Evil is not a law unto itself. It's not an autonomous force. Uh, God's people belong to God. The Lord yet is sovereign. Evil is there, but it's not unbridled or uncontained, praise God. Even evil is controlled by the sovereignty of God. It will not be victorious. It will not defeat the good, ultimately. What a message for God's people. What a message. What a glorious promise. Right? The evil and the wickedness that is rampant in the world, even that, 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 that runs so strongly in our own hearts, will not, will not succeed, will not be victorious. What a wonderful promise. They are in a bad way, the people of God, here in Zechariah, in the midst of great moral collapse. But it is the Lord who is in control. Right? Evil is yet under His control and providence and sovereignty. And for the church today, what a message for us. What a message for us that God has conquered sin through Jesus Christ. And evil will never carry the day. It's a wonderful promise. It is contained, it is chained, it is not allowed to run free and autonomous amongst the people of God. God does indeed work all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It is not like so many believe in the world and so many other philosophies that there are two forces fighting over you, right? good and evil, equal, and the world is just their playing field. That is not true. That is not true. It is not a Christian belief. Good and evil aren't two equal forces. God is sovereign over everything. Everything. Even evil is contained and controlled by our sovereign Lord. Right? And for that, we can and should praise the Lord. And so we see the wickedness in the land. And then secondly, we see, uh, we, um, we come to what is ultimately the washing of the Lord. The washing of the Lord. And we see this in verse 9, where it says, Then I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, two women coming forward, and the wind was in their wings. 
and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. We have these two women taking this basket, we'll read later, to Shinar, to put it there. And it's interesting, you know, they say, it says they had wings uh, like the wings of a stork. And when we look at scripture, we read the description of the stork, or we read about the stork in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, and we learn that the stork is, an, uh, is unclean. It's unclean. And so these are unclean agents taking the basket, the wickedness from the people of God somewhere else to shine on. And this may be to emphasize the, in contrast between these unclean agents and the holy cherubim that we talked about last week, right? On top of the ark. And it's interesting, if we look at the ancient Near East and the practices of this time, uh, there were very common ceremonies uh, that they would go through where bad things, evilness, would be symbolically assigned to objects and then those objects removed. Right? They would take rocks, for instance, and blood would be placed on the rocks, and the rocks would be dropped into the sea to symbolize the removal of evil. Or they would take blood and we place it on birds, and the birds would be set free to symbolize what? The taking away, or the sending away of evil from the people. And of course, we know this very well from the scapegoats that we read about. Right? This is probably most notably for us. What we, we, this is not foreign to us. Right? The sins of the people are symbolically placed on the goat, transferred to it, and it is slain. And then the other goat is sent away into the desert, into the wilderness, away from the people of God, away, removed from God's people. And this is something similar to what's going on in our text here this morning. This basket is full of wickedness, the wickedness of the people, and it's being taken away. Where's it being taken to? Being taken, to Shine, uh, taken away to Shinar. Uh, remember, we read about this place in Genesis 10 and 11. Um, this is where the Tower of Babel, right, this incident takes place. This great revolt against God, the Tower of Babel. It was a land of great apostasy and decadent humanism, right? This Babel is the land of Shinar. Another name for Shinar is Babylon. Right? It, was, it was the Babylonians, you'll recall, coming up to the, histor the history where we are with Zechariah that destroyed Judah and destroyed Jerusalem in 586, and they led the Jews into exile. Babylon is the land of Shinar. And these Jews in Zechariah's time, they have just returned from Babylon. They've just gotten back from Shinar. And here the wickedness, right? this, is a, this vision pictures the wickedness of the people of God being flown back to Babylon where it belongs. That's where wickedness belongs. And this is a vision of the deliverance of God's people from their iniquity, their deliverance from iniquity. That they are to be separated from the unbelieving world. And the wickedness of the world that is here is symbolized by Babylon. And so we read there in verse 11, it's being flown where? To Shinar, to, to build a house for it. And so we have this unclean, uh, the unclean stork women are to build a house for the harlot woman in Babylon, in Shinar. Then they'll set the basket in the house, and there she will dwell. And notice the irony of what's going on here, what's going on contextually, what we talked about, we, we, we've seen in, in, the, in the prophet Haggai, and even in Zechariah. 
in Jerusalem, what's going on? What are the Jews doing? They're building a house for Yahweh. They're rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And in Babylon, there's a house being constructed for, these wicked, for the wicked woman. That's where she belongs, not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where the temple of God belongs. And the purity of the people of God. And so listen to the connections here. And the similar themes that we read about from these things and in the last book in your Bibles, in the book of Revelation. Revelation 17. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and, and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead were written, was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. You see, it's a similar vision. With an interpreting angel showing John here a vision of a woman of harlotry, she stands for wickedness, known for her persecution of God's people. Right? The blood of the martyrs of Christ. And in Revelation, as we look at it as a whole, Babylon stands for the unbelieving world that persecutes the church of God. As we read on the next chapter, in chapter 18, the second part of this vision, it says this. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Right? He sees, right? here John sees Babylon as the dwelling place for all sorts of wickedness and demons and unclean things. And also that Babylon has been destroyed. Right? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Victory over wickedness. In the sense of all that is uh, uh, is, is that God would take care of the wickedness and sinfulness of his people, indeed of the whole world. And brothers and sisters, this is nothing less than the wonder of the gospel. Right? It's the wonder of the gospel and all that he has done for, for us as a church, for you personally. Right? Do you see that? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it glorious what the Lord has done? He will drive the sins of his people away, away as far as the east is from the west. It's the glorious promise of what he has done in reality and in revelation, the one who takes it away, who takes it all the way, right? The one who deals with the sins 
of God's people is found in the next chapter, in chapter 19 of Revelation. And who is this one who deals with the sins of his people? Who is it? Revelation 19, verse 11. Glorious indeed. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he, will, that he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is the one who deals with the sins of his people? It's the rider on the horse. The one who accomplishes all of this by delivering God's people and destroying Babylon the Great. Fallen. It is the rider on the horse from Zechariah's first vision that he opens the book with. It is the work of the Messiah who died on behalf of his people and brought judgment upon Babylon and on the world. And did all of this at the cross for you, his people. Glorious indeed, God's people are sinners like all people in the world, but they are redeemed sinners by the work of the rider on the red horse. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed. God will not abandon his people. He will not abandon them in their wickedness. Rather, he will eradicate sin through judgment and removal. And those judged outside of Christ, what of them? What will happen of them? Why is it so important for us to tell others of Christ and the reality and the escape and the salvation from the wrath of God and from their sins? Those outside of Christ, we read about in Revelation chapter 6 earlier. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. What? They hid themselves, it says, in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Those judged in Christ, however, God's judgment will not happen to them because it's already happened for them in Christ. As he took that to the dregs, the full cup of God's wrath, Christ did. Jesus was judged for all who placed their faith in him. This is the gospel. He received the just penalty for them through his death. That's why we read Romans chapter 3 earlier. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 1 John 2 talks about this as well. He is the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. Here he exhausted God's judgment so that his people would be delivered from the covenant curse that they deserved for failing to keep that covenant. Why well, I read in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. Why? so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, God's work of expulsion 
of sin will not happen to them either, those who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ, because it happens in them by the work of the Holy Spirit. God's work is to purge sin from them, like the woman in the basket, wickedness. How? By enabling them to put to death the deeds of the flesh and producing the fruit of holiness. Right? These go hand in hand. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. And how is this done? This is done by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to those who are united to Christ. The Lord has accomplished redemption for His people. And He is now, even now, making them, that's you, the church, fit for heaven, fit for glory. He has accomplished for you the satisfaction of the guilt of your iniquity. Jesus Christ accomplishes the visions of Zechariah chapter 5. Destroying your iniquity, carrying off your iniquity, away, away. Is that true of you, dear friends? Is that true of you? Has this Christ carried away your sin, destroyed your wickedness, your iniquity? Are you secure in the love and forgiveness of this Christ? Do you know the freedom and cleansing of the gospel for you, personally? Do you know it? I pray that you do. And if you do not, I implore you to flee to Christ for life. Because it's in Him alone where life is found. And if you do, does that truth, do these truths of the gospel flow into your life? Does it impact your living? How is it changing you? How is it growing you in your life? And think about this. If you fully and truly believed all that His Word tells you about who you are in Christ, how radically different would your life be? Your life and living and trusting and believing, how radically different would that be? What would that look like? I know mine would look very different. Maybe it would be less worrisome. Maybe we, we would be, maybe we would be less angry and less stressed. Maybe we would be more patient. Certainly, we would love more. Maybe that would be our default instead of impatience and anger and worry. Maybe we would love more. In fact, we would begin to look more and more to resemble Jesus. Christ accomplishes the visions of chapter 5 in Zechariah, destroying and carrying off your iniquities. May we praise him for it. And in the despair and grief in our own day-to-day -day lives and struggles with discontentment and discouragement and disgust even over our own sin and the church's lack of purity, may we look to him and praise him for all that he has done. Right? Our life is full. We don't, we're, not, we're not saved. We're not introduced to the gospel and believe it and leave it behind and go and live. We carry that with us. We must every day for all of our lives. Not just for our justification, but for our sanctification and our safety. He has set in motion the reality of all these things. He not only forgives, but He lifts you and He strengthens you and He enlivens you. Right? The old-fashioned word is He continues to vivify you, give you life. Know the victory won in Him who is yours. 
to whom you're united. May we indeed know this, and may we live our lives more and more in his victory for us. Do you see, dear Christian? Do you see? Do you see, because of all that the Lord of glory has done for you, do you see who you are? And if you do, now go and be who you are. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise for the wonder of all that you've done for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, seen us far from you, that you have arranged a way to draw us near, to cleanse us, and to give us life. Lord, we pray that we would indeed uh, remember all that you've delivered us from, even your wrath, Lord. We thank you for the cleansing of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you continue to cleanse us and work in us through this power of your Spirit. We pray that we would know the glory of that union and that it would indeed affect our lives as we live lives of gratitude for our King and Savior, all to your glory. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.